This is Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien and Chris Sullivan. Let's get another perspective on the war between Israel and Hamas from Judy lash Bayland. We go back 40 years. She arranged uh, some contacts when I was in Jerusalem for the Intifada and before that, Refuseniks in the Soviet Union. Uh, she's in Jerusalem. Needless to say, she knows a lot about this. And I, I wanted to ask you about an aspect of this, which I uh, wasn't aware of until you sent me uh, uh, an article, which is that the the displacement of Israelis who have been living basically on the frontier. Some of these Israeli towns have been evacuated. All of them, Dave, have been uh, uh, evacuated, yes, from the early days of this war. And since actually right after October 7th, of course, the communities that were devastated in the south, uh, those people all left pretty much uh, that night or Sunday morning. October 7th was a Saturday and uh, their communities, you know, were burned. People were murdered. Um, So uh, those those communities in the south were, yes, those uh, those people were evacuated. And then very quickly it became clear that uh, the government um, (laughs) decided that uh, the people in the northern border, we have a a northern border with uh, Lebanon and with Syria, and uh, there was a great fear, which is now being carried out, unfortunately, that uh, there would be missile attacks also uh, on the communities in the north. And, of course, there was a great fear that uh, there would be another invasion uh, like there was in the south. And so um, uh, altogether, about 200,000 Israelis uh, have not been in their homes since October 7th. Where, and, have, uh, where are they all living? In hotels, in um, schools, uh, mostly in hotels, some kibbutzim, some collective uh, uh, kibbutzim in areas that are relatively safe um, along the coast um, have taken people in also. But the Ministry of Tourism actually uh, was the one that was brought in and uh, uh, they're accommodating about uh, 88,000 people now living in hotels. Um, about 87,000 people are being hosted on kibbutzim or they found apartments like in, in my, on my street, actually, in the next building over to me, there's a family from Ashkelon. Ashkelon is a city, a big city that, uh, is not far from Gaza and, uh, they've been under missile attack and, uh, many of those people do not have what we call protected rooms, um, that, are, that you run into if there's a missile attack. And so the people of Ashkelon, a lot of people in Ashkelon, uh, self-evacuated, you could say. Um, and there's about 73,000 of those people who, who chose to self-evacuate uh, in addition to the ones that the government, you know, insisted uh, leave the areas, the border areas um, that were very, very close. What is the, the current sentiment among Israelis on the progress of the war? The most pressing concern of Israelis today, of course, is the hostages. Yes. And of course, here on this side, we are hearing protests from actually Jewish voices who say that Israel has overreacted. We just had uh, Interstate 5 through Seattle closed down for four hours by a group called Jewish Voice for Peace, which also uh, closed down another major street before that, uh, saying that Israel has overreacted. And so... And we're seeing some indications that um, even in the U.S. Congress, there are people on the uh, Democratic side and and Joe Biden (laughs) prominently saying that uh, Israel has to do whatever it can to minimize the loss of of uh, innocent life in uh, in Gaza. So how does this end? 
Um, I, I don't know that anybody knows how it's going to end. I mean, we're being told here that uh, it's going to be a long war. The rumor has it uh, that uh, Sinwa, the uh, head of Hamas, has, has actually surrounded himself with the hostages, um, you know, because he's a number one target, obviously. Uh, so we're not expecting it to end anytime soon. I mean, the cleaning out of the Hamas infrastructure, the Hamas structure, the destruction of Hamas, um, you know, if, if, if they're not destroyed uh, by, by Israeli uh, forces, you can bet your life that uh, other countries and uh, uh, other societies are going to be affected. They've, they've said that. In Hebrew, you say it's a krav ala bayit, you know, it's a, it's a fight for the home, for our house. Um, if we, it's either them or us. You know, the results of this, I think, will be a complete turnaround in in Israeli society. And uh, many people here are saying this is like our second war of independence. You know, that whatever comes after this, um, Israeli society will never look the same uh, politically, um, uh, economically, um, societally. You know, this is this is this is a, a, a real watershed for Israel in terms of uh, uh, the perception of where we are and how how we have to defend ourselves. Judy Lash Bailent, who's a correspondent for the Jewish News Syndicate in Jerusalem. Thank you, Judy. My pleasure, Dave. Always good to talk to you. At 6.45 this morning, we paged Dr. Cohen to figure out just how seriously you should take your body mass index. But uh, over the weekend, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal about concerns about the way Boeing's been building its planes. And Chris, I thought we'd uh, bring you in as our transportation reporter. It sounds like we're back to the perennial discussion about whether... Boeing should have outsourced, and I even, I've even heard people discuss whether the the merger with McDonnell Douglas was a good idea. Yeah, we're going all the way back yeah. to the 70s here with this, but primarily the outsourcing decisions that were made in advance of the Dreamliner being built, and of course, which have continued with the max, of whether or not you lose quality control when you have all the, the you know component parts built elsewhere, and then they're assembled here. Uh, and so, yeah, that was, you know, and what we've heard a lot, and that what was, I think, really interesting interesting in that Wall Street Journal article is what comes out of Spirit Ever Systems in Wichita. If you're not, everyone's not familiar by now, the 737 fuselages are built in Wichita, and they're trained over here on, a, you know, you've, I see them on I-90 through Montana. They're train loads of fuselages just going down the road heading to Renton. Uh, and the fact that at Spirit, the if you tell something to your manager like, hey, we look like we've got a defect here. I found some debris over here inside. It's met with more almost punishment than it is with, oh, really, maybe we should take care of that. That was very interesting to see that the culture there yeah. potentially is more on, hey, let's try to meet Boeing's unrealistic demands, which when we were getting up to building 52 737s a month, uh, it seemed pretty ambitious. Things are going to get lost in the system and it sounds like that's where we are i i I think as a just speaking as a passenger when airlines compete they should compete on things like uh you know cabin service and stuff like that but quality should never be compromised right no you you don't never you don't cut costs when it comes to how the airplanes assembled right no and but that sounds like with uh you know the way that uh with the way that boeing ramped up production and it was going so fast uh at the same time you know the faa lose uh 
brings back some of its quality control, allowing Boeing to sign off on some of their things. Uh, you know, things apparently were getting missed. And this is nothing new, apparently. You know, if, if you the, the Wall Street Journal article goes back and takes long dives back into this, including whistleblowers from 2001 and yeah. other things like that. So, yeah, it's it, it, it's a really, really interesting and somewhat scary read. Does Boeing have its own people at the Spirit Factory? Yeah, they do now. Uh, yeah. Stan Deal, the president, uh, or the sorry, the CEO of Commercial Airlines, uh, airplane sent a, a memo out to everybody this morning, uh, kind of outlining five different things that they're going to be doing. One of them is they're sending a team to Spirit to over- help oversee not only the door plug uh, assembly, but 50 other points of the Spirit builds on the fuselage. Uh, uh, they're opening, they're allowing their customers, like the airlines, to come into their factories and actually look at what they're doing and you know question. And it turns out that they are going to look to an outside party now to oversee their entire quality management system uh, as well to see what they can or cannot do better. Uh, but again, another thing that is kind of lost in this with the Wall Street Journal article really pointed out is during the pandemic when we lost the, the demand for flight, Spirit Aerosystems laid off thousands and thousands of people, and they still don't have the bodies back to help, you know, to meet Boeing's demands for for the ramp up of production. Uh, And so it's, yeah, it's a, we're in a, it's not, I wouldn't say dangerous or scary spot, but it's definitely, there's a lot going on there that seems to, this isn't your grandfather's Boeing. Let me put it to you this way. Morning news. This is Dave Ross with Chris Sullivan and Colleen O'Brien. You've heard about body mass index. Well, some doctors think that it is vastly overrated. Let's page Dr. Cohen. Paging Dr. Cohen. Dr. Gordon Cohen, MD. First of all, explain what body mass index is and why was it developed? Right. Well, I'm sure most people have heard of body mass index, and it's a a, a number that's actually derived. It's a calculation by dividing someone's weight. In kilograms, we have to take uh, our weight in pounds and uh, divide it by 2.2, but our weight in kilograms uh, divided by the square of their height in meters. And a body mass index number, it essentially classifies a person as either being underweight, uh, normal weight, or overweight, or obese. So there's four different classifications. One of the problems with it is that the formula is pretty simple. And it doesn't really take into account the critical details, such as the difference between muscle and fat. It just is basically your weight and your 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 height. Uh, and so, uh, when it comes to like individual health risks, or even you know uh, risks for insurance companies, uh, and insurance companies rely on it heavily, uh, it doesn't really tell the the actual story. And the interesting thing is is that, you know, the shortcomings of body mass index have you know really sort of been recognized for, for decades. I think in the past when we've talked about uh, topics like obesity and so forth. I, I've mentioned that there are problems with body mass index. Uh, yet, for whatever reason, it's become ingrained in medicine, and doctors, you know, keep using it as a quick way to diagnose obesity, and sort of as a proxy for for overall health. Now, is there a right way to do it? I know some fitness clubs will say, "Hey, we can we can calculate your true body mass index because we can distinguish between fat and muscle." Right. So there are different ways of, of doing it. Now, and, and that's the thing, right? So if, if somebody is an athlete uh, and they're super fit and they have uh, a lot of muscle on their body, for example, um, they may be classified as obese. They may have a body mass index of over 30. And so they would be classified as obese. 
Whereas if you look at somebody who is normal weight, but their weight is uh, distributed between uh, a high percentage of fat and a low percentage of muscle, uh, those people would be classified as normal weight, yet in fact by uh, the distribution of fat or the percentage of body fat they have, they would actually be obese. So you have to look at other factors. You have to look at the difference between uh, the amount of muscle they have and the amount of fat they have. And so there have been ways that uh, to determine this. Uh, historically, it used to be more problematic. I don't know if you ever did this or know anyone who did this, but they used to have like a dunk tank where you would weigh somebody underwater. I saw that. And, and there were, there were you know, uh, nomograms where you could uh, actually look up based on what somebody's weight was underwater, uh, what their percent body fat was. And so this was sort of the original way of uh, figuring out uh, body composition. But now as, you know, science has advanced, there's now like electronic ways of doing it using bioimpedance, which used to be very expensive used to have to go to like a physician's office to do it. Uh, but now bioimpedance, you can actually buy scales for, you know, $20, $25 on Amazon that have uh, bioimpedance built in. Now, it doesn't mean that that those cheap scales are perfect, but they actually give you some, uh, um, some estimate of something closer than just simply um, body mass index. Bioimpedance, uh, so they zap a current through your body to figure out whether you're more muscular or too fat? Yeah, they do that. <laughs> I know it sounds funny. You don't actually feel the current, but sort of the really the gold standard ways of doing it are either getting an MRI, but you know MRIs are incredibly expensive, uh, and uh, and they take a while to do. A lot of people are claustrophobic, and so it's not really a very practical way of uh, determining somebody's body composition, but a more uh, practical way is what's called a DEXA scan, D-E-X-A. And a DEXA scan is uh, emits so little radiation that uh, it doesn't require any proper, any special shielding or anything like that. And it can uh, disting distinguish between muscle and fat. Uh, it can do it uh, pretty quickly. Uh, it's relatively inexpensive. And so um, it's, it's probably the best way of doing it right now that qualifies as a gold standard um, uh, and is easier than being dunked in a tank and more accurate than uh, doing bioelectrical impedance analysis. Okay, so there are reliable ways to calculate it. So then if let's assume you get one of these accepted ways to calculate an accurate BMI. What do you do with the number? Yeah, it's a fantastic, fantastic question because you may know the information, but how do you communicate it in a meaningful way? If you're applying for life insurance, they don't care. They're only going to use your body mass index, and that's a problem. And uh, it, it, it's a useful number to, you know, it, it actually, there's a scan. It's, it would be useful to take your scan with you to your physician's office. The physician probably had to order the test in the first place, but it's not necessarily the case. And give them that DEXA scan so that they have that information. Because once you have that information, then the physician can have a, uh, uh, a conversation with you about what your actual risk is for developing certain diseases. Uh, the interesting thing is, is that, you know, it wasn't even until uh, I believe it was 2013 when uh, the American Medical Association finally uh, recognized that uh, obesity is, in fact, uh, disease. And interestingly, it wasn't until last year, June of last year, that the AMA finally acknowledged that BMI alone is an imperfect measure and that clinical practices need to change. So, 
Um, so it's, you know, it, it's something that, you, you, you know, in medical school, you're not really taught this. It's, and it's, you're really taught, you know, body mass index. And it's used so frequently that it's one of those things that's hard to break away from. But the thing is, is that if you really want to understand uh, your risk for, you know, uh, obesity, uh, real obesity, and, you know, the related uh, conditions like cancer, diabetes, and heart disease, those risks haven't changed. Those risks are real. But in order to understand what your particular risk is, uh, it's important to know. Uh, it's important to know what your actual body composition is. And the thing is, is this is a very timely conversation to have because now there's these new weight loss weight loss drugs, and there's bariatric surgery. And insurance companies are making decisions on whether or not you qualify for. Uh, coverage of your weight loss drug or coverage of your bariatric surgery based on your body mass index. And so, you know, this is a problem. This this needs to change. Uh, and, you know, if it took the American Medical Association to association until just last year, at least by them making the statement, maybe we can start changing things in the right direction. But uh, in, 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 until then, this imperfect number is being used to make a lot of decisions for people. Well, I, I go to my fitness center, let's see, two, three times a week, but nobody would mistake me for Tyler Lockett, I can tell you that. <laughs> well, you're a little older than him, and you have a beard, and he doesn't, so yeah, I guess. that's true. <laughs> Dr. Gordon Cohen, MD. Dr. Cohen, thank you. Thanks, Dave. And time for Crime and Punishment, our weekly check-in with Casey McNurthney from the King County Prosecutor's Office. And one of the things everybody wants to know... Will there be prosecutions for those demonstrators responsible for shutting down I-5 North last Saturday? The short answer is it really depends on what we get from the state patrol. We don't have any cases yet. Uh, but for the people who are wondering, are you actually going to do something? Of course, if we get something. And what we'll do is look at each one of those cases individually. And it, there's not a rule of, you know, if it's a protest that we agree with or don't agree with, whatever it is, that we would look at it a certain way. Regardless of what the protest is about, we're going to look at that behavior and say, is there a crime that can be proven here? The State Patrol and our office have been in contact and their investigation is ongoing still. So, and the reason why it comes to our office is because misdemeanors typically go to the cities where they happen, but on state roads like I-5 or I-90 or 405, they go to the, the county. So you would not be responsible for any prosecutions as a result of the University Bridge protest then? Right. So University Bridge would go to the city attorney's office the same way that if there was a protest in Bellevue or a federal way or shoreline or a place like that, it would go to the city prosecutor. But any city in King County, if it's on I-5, 405, I-90, it, it would go to us. And we'd look at it individually and, and, and see if there's a crime that we could prove. Yeah. Going back to the I-5 blockage. Yeah. How is there any dispute over that being a crime? You can't just block a freeway for the, I mean, clearly it was deliberately done. They drove cars there. They stopped the cars. They abandoned the cars. That, that doesn't constitute a crime? Well, we don't have a case yet. It hasn't been sent to us yet. And so I don't think there's any question that, that watching people on the footage that we saw, you know, that was a problem. But in terms of, of, how have we not charged it yet? We don't have a case referred to us yet. The investigation, I'm I, I'm sure, is trying to look at, 
how can you positively identify somebody to where you can go to court and say, hmm. this clearly is the conduct and we are certain that this person did it. Because saying, you know, we think this was a person or it might have been this person won't be enough to hold up in court. Could a uh, somebody whose loved one was stuck in an ambulance in the resulting traffic jam file some kind of action? A civil case, it's possible. Uh, but you've got to be able to identify who exactly the action is against. Well, whoever abandoned the car on the freeway. Yeah. I mean, right? you get it. The burden of proof is different for a criminal case than a civil matter. Mm -hmm. But if there was clearly, you know, a leader who, who had been identified uh, for, for any kind of protest and there was a clearly a wrong, th that in theory could lead to a civil suit. Whether or not that would be successful would be determined by what was presented in court. We're hearing from Casey McNurthney from the King County Prosecutor's Office. And he brought up another case, completely different matter. It's something described as an economic offense involving an undocumented immigrant family. Well, this was a case where there was there was a family that was here. They were undocumented. And the person who was the defendant in this in this case met them through church and said, hey, do you need to get your affairs in order? And they were looking for somebody to try to get them uh, legal citizenship. And, and so this theft went on for a long time. And the defendant also said, hey, you know, it, it would be faster if you had other families involved here. And so there ended up being three families who were undocumented, who were trying to get legal citizenship, who ended up losing tens and tens of thousands of dollars. Senior Deputy uh, Prosecutor Chris File handled this case, and here is him explaining this. He had them undertake unnecessary medical tests. He had them go down to California for what he promised was the final step of the process to meet the lawyers and come, you know, pick up their paperwork. They never got to meet a single lawyer. He took a few of them to the legal office, said it was too busy, and then just told them more, more and more lies. One of the families said, you know, we ran out of money. They had a daughter, an infant daughter who was extremely ill, and she was in the hospital, and, and, and uh, they said, we can't pay anymore. And he said, well, if you stop paying everybody else's money, these other two families, their money is lost. Everyone must continue to pay until the end. So they had to start borrowing money like, in the midst of their family medical crisis. He came to the hospital to talk to them about the need to make more payments. So it's just really one of the victims today at sentencing said that he was inhumane. So this promise, uh, this attempt, quote, to get them citizenship was just a scam? Yeah. Yeah. And they lost... What was documented was $73,000, but they believe it was more than that because they were all cash payments over over many, many months. And this set this, this family, all three victim families back, you know, for, for years in their efforts to become legal citizens. And it uh, it's, it's such a tragic case. And the defendant in court on Friday didn't apologize, said that he's planning to appeal. And what's remarkable about this is the victim families said that this kind of crime happens a lot. And many people are, are afraid to come forward to the police because of their undocumented status. Wow. So uh, how much time did this guy get? Well, the range, the standard range, which I think some folks would be surprised by, the standard range was three to nine months. What the judge on, on Friday said was, I'm going to give you 18 months, six months for each of, of the families that you, you victimized. That little girl that you heard in that clip from, from Chris File there, she, she ended up dying. And, and, yeah. and it was just such a tragedy. Here's Chris again um, explaining what stood out to him about this case. One of the points that the judge made at sentencing, the judge was Paul Crisali. One of the reasons that 18 months was appropriate, he said, was because these were people who were trying to do the right thing. 
they wanted to become legal citizens. They built lives here. They have families here. They work here. And they wanted to become legal citizens throughout the pendency of the case. Like when, when the theft was ongoing, it was telling the victims, you know, you can't go to the police. And if you go to the police, you'll be you'll, you'll face immigration related consequences just for reporting the crime because you yourself are in a vulnerable position. So what's the family's immigration status now? That's a good question. I don't know. And what's interesting is that didn't come up in the court case. The judge and the prosecutor and the police investigators and even the defense attorney didn't ask for, for that now. What the court focused on was, was that regardless of what the family's status is, that crime is still going to be prosecuted. But that's a good question. I'm sure there was a lot of people that would like to know that there's a happy ending, that they do have citizenship. But yeah. We don't have that. And is this kind of thing still going on? In terms of this kind of fraud? Yeah. It, it's happening to many families. And and so one thing that, that Chris wanted to emphasize and also the police investigators is that if you know somebody who's in a situation like this, who feels like they can't come forward, they can. And there are police investigators and prosecutors and the courts who, who will help them. Casey McDurphy from the King County Prosecutor's Office. Time for your daily dose of kindness, brought to you by Heritage Homecraft. Decades after a mob destroyed her home in Texas, Opal Lee, you know that name? She's returning to that location. Here's CBS's Steve Hartman with the incredible story. At the age of 97. Good morning. Just stepping out of a 4 by 4 is a major accomplishment. But Opal Lee has taken much greater strides than this. <sighs> with no plans to sit anytime soon. Where do we go from here? We don't have to sit around and wait for the Lord to come for us. In fact, he's going to have to catch me. Opal is a retired teacher and lifelong community activist in Fort Worth, Texas. She's mostly known for her successful campaign to make Juneteenth a national holiday. But what is lesser known is how that fire in her belly came to be. Back in 1939, when Opal was 12, her family moved into a house in an all-white neighborhood. They'd lived here just five days when a mob showed up. What did the mob do to your house? They tore it asunder. They set stuff on fire. They did despicable things. The family moved away and moved on. They just wanted to forget the horror. Until... Eight decades later, when Opal Lee decided the time had come to remember it. So she looked up the address, found out the lot was still vacant and owned by the local chapter of Habitat for Humanity. CEO Gage Yeager took Opal's call. He listened to her story, but then told her she could not buy that property. Said, uh, well, we won't sell it to you, Opal, but we'll give it to you. There's no, no option for anything else. What'd you think when you heard that? Ah, when I get happy, I want to do a holy dance, but the kids say I'm twerking, so I don't ever do it. <laughs> and she still hadn't heard the best news. Gage also offered to work with donors to put a house on her land for free. And so it'll be a three-bedroom. Plans are done, and he hopes to have it ready for Opal to move in by her 99th birthday. I want you to know that I've got a God who has been so good to me. I think if I ask, he'd let me have a couple of more years. <laughs> Request submitted. That is Steve Hartman. Seattle's Morning News. And now from the Ginnersley Show, here's G. Scott. So many changes. It's like that nightmare where you 
You come home, open the door, and mm. you, your house is full of strangers. Mm. Have, you so, ever had, have you ever had that happen? Not actually happen, no. Yeah, it's not fun. No, it's not fun at all. So you, <laughs> you, you, do you have a story you, you to tell? Happen? I mean, come on, man. F- folks of us that, that's had roommates in the past, you know what I'm saying? Come on, Sully, you come yeah. to roommates the crib. Roommates are weird. Yeah. Right, right, you come to the crib, man. You're like, dog, you ain't supposed to bring no girl over. Come on, man. You know what I, happened to me? I had my roommate move out while I wasn't there. Took a, even Down to the last bobby pin. I came home late from, like, college, and she was gone. Not a speck wow. left of her. Yeah, roommates are not great. What'd you say when you walked in? I don't even remember. It was so many years ago, but I, like we never spoke again. Isn't that the weirdest part? Anyway. Oh, what did you do? I, nothing. Uh, how'd you, how did you pay your bills? <laughs> uh, the, their, her parents continued to pay mm-hmm. until the lease was up. Was she the coach of a losing football team? Yeah, Actually, in fact, she was. So this is an odd coincidence with today's story. How about that? <laughs> well, so what are you going to ask me about? Kaylin DeBoer. Suddenly he's gone, and they already have his replacement. This sounds like something that was was had been baked in secret. And, uh, yeah, that's just how. I mean, we can't pick and choose when we want to decide that college football is a business. So, can we agree that it's a business? Oh yeah, yeah. All right then. Then it's a business, and it stays that way. Don't start to pick and choose where tradition and legacy and team and no. It's a business. Kalen DeBoer went to go do the best for his family, and it was always good. Everybody does the best for their families. That's what you do. If you're listening right now, if you're a fan, you, yourself, Dave Ross, mm-hmm. Colleen, Sully, you do the best for your family. Kalen DeBoer goes out there. I'll tell you what's a little funny, though. What? Nick Saban, Kalen DeBoer, guess what? They got the same agent. Same agent. I heard you say that. Oh, so, interesting. And there's a little backroom deal going on. I mean, you know how agents work? Yeah. Ain't that's what they're supposed to do? Isn't that why they get the percent that they do on the Absolutely. back end? Yeah. They do their jobs, Colleen. Yeah. Can I ask you a question, though? Because we did talk about this on Friday when mm-hmm. all the, it was still the rumors. And yeah. it's really interesting. We love when that happens, when we talk about something in the morning and then it happens a few hours later. It's yeah. like, yeah, we're so smart. But uh, what I was curious is why do we get upset at players like quarterbacks and all that when they leave for a different team, a better deal? But for coaches, we're like, he's got to get that money. Let's <laughs> him go this is a good thing for his family what why don't we why don't we hold coaches accountable to loyalty uh, uh, i don't know you don't know you no, don't have an answer to no, that no, and no, it no. just strikes me I, as I, odd I think, that players I, get kind of slapped around I, I th- and i think that fans are waking up now i think fans are now seeing it so when a couple years ago when i would talk about how college football isn't what people think yeah. and i would tell you that oh it's about education and i would tell you no it's about money people would laugh at me and be like gee you don't know what you're talking about now today it's like you have people waking up like you know what there's a lot of shadiness that goes on yeah there mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. and so to answer to your question colleen i do believe now most people are starting to be more understanding. Oh, I get it now. Uh-huh. Coach leaves, right? Oh, if a player wants to leave, oh. So for an example, a lot of people are upset with Kalen DeBoer for leaving Washington. Fair? Mm-hmm. Are you equally upset at Jed Fish for leaving Arizona to come here? I don't have an opinion about him yeah, yet. But, I, I never heard of him. But does yeah. that make, but that make sense? Yeah, and, yeah. I, and let me tell you who Jed Fish is. I'm going to tell you what, about him. 
first of all, I think this is a great hire for the University of Washington. I know Jed Fish personally, uh, oh. going back to 2017 when he was the OC for UCLA. He was the offensive coordinator, mm-hmm. and he, with UCLA, Jim Moore was the head coach. I'd gone down there because they were recruiting my son at the time back in 2017. Even dating back further than that, in 2010, he was the quarterbacks coach for Matt Hasselbeck and the Seattle Seahawks oh. here at that time. In 2018 and 19, he was the offensive assistant to Sean McVay for the L.A. Rams. He's got a great resume. This dude, Jed Fish, is a offensive mind. He is a really good coach on the offensive side of things. That's where the game is going. Offensive mind. You keep hearing about McVay for the uh, Rams and Shanahan for the Niners, and you're seeing all of these different offensive gurus. Ryan Grubb was the offensive coordinator for the uh, Washington Huskies this past year. He was phenomenal. Let me slow down. My point is, is that I think that considering the University of Washington got a good coach down in Arizona, he was doing a phenomenal job. As a matter of fact, coming into this season coming up, they were going to have 18 of its 22 starters coming back. They were going to be in the top 15. They were being considered as a possible, hey, this team could make it to the playoffs. This is good news. This is good news. And I'll tell you another part that's good news. They had a quarterback last season by the name of Noah Fafita. Yo, he's a bad man. Now, Mm. I don't know if he's transferring. I don't know if he's transferring. I think he is. I don't know if he's transferring, but if he does, and if if you're a Husky fan, you're like, well, what are you going to do at quarterback? You guys are fine. You'll be good. Jeff well, Fish is a quarterback guru. But are his SAT scores high enough to get to view done? <laughs> wow. That's funny. That's funny. <laughs> Wait. Do you guys care about SAT scores anymore? <laughs> Just checking. I, I, I think I, only people Sully? that scored high care. Do, they, do, they, do, do fans care about grades anymore? They never did if you can play quarterback. <laughs> oh. <laughs> See y'all. She's Bye, Scott, Gene. 9 o'clock on Kyron News Radio. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News, the podcast. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. You can find our podcast weekday mornings right at 930. And if you subscribe, you will never miss the Daily Dose of Kindness.